You're listening to the Northwestern Campus Ministry Podcast from Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa. Northwestern Campus Ministry exists to send students out as those rooted, built up, and established in Christ for God's glory and for the sake of the world. Thanks for listening and enjoy this recent message from our Christian Formation Program. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and flip to Acts chapter 15. We are in week three of a four-week series on idolatry, this biblical notion of idolatry. And we have been defining idols uh, this way, if I can get my slides up here. All right, we've been defining idols this way. Idols are anything more fundamental than God to our meaning, our happiness, and our identity. And so therefore, idols don't necessarily need to be bad things. They can be good things, good gifts from God turned into ultimate things. Therefore, a God-like thing, anything other than the one true, true God is a, is a counterfeit God. And I, I just want to just be honest about what I'm feeling in my heart right now. I really have a tender love and sensitivity to the counterfeit God I want us to dive into today, consumption and the consumption of sex. And I carry a, a certain heaviness in my heart recognizing the fact that I've wept with a lot of you. I know a lot of your stories. Um, I'm aware of some statistics. And because of all these things and the shame and the isolation and the self-blame, addiction, victimization, emptiness, the list goes on. We carry sexual brokenness in our stories and in our bodies in a very visceral, vivid, real, vulnerable kind of way. And that's why I carry a certain tenderness. And I believe, I just want to start this uh, sermon off just saying this because I believe this is true. That not only is God a healer, but God wants each and every one of you to know that none of you is damaged goods. Not one of you is defined by your brokenness, by your past woundedness, by your sin, by past mistakes. But in Christ, it's his grace alone that he redefines you and claims you forever in his his love, as his beloved. And so I just want to to name that gospel truth, and I want us to anchor ourselves in this reality that our belovedness, it will never change according to our wandering. However, we are loved in such a way that God loves us too much to keep us the same. Our belovedness is intended to change our wandering. And so I want to gently invite each and every one of us to open our hearts and to consider God's word today, to repent, to turn, and really ultimately the invitation today is to walk in healing. Amen. And so with that said, would you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, would you be a great and healer of your position in this space and in this place today? Father, would your word be our rule and Holy Spirit, would you come and convict and teach us and lead us on the path of everlasting? And all God's people said, amen. And so our text today is Acts 15, there's a lot of layers going on here, but I just want to keep us centered on the main thing of what's going on in Acts 15. So the book of Acts testifies to the fact that there was a gospel explosion among cultures and ethnic groups of all nations, the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. And so this gospel explosion, people were giving their lives to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 
And what they were discussing in Acts 15, this was a council. It was called the Jerusalem Council. It was one of its kind. There was no council like this. This was a massive deal. Verse 2 of Acts 15 talks about how they got so heated, there was dissension and debate. They were arguing this incredibly, massively important thing. Do we require the Gentiles to get circumcised? Circumcision was a visible sign of God's faithfulness to his people throughout the millennia. All the way back to Abraham, God gave circumcision as this visible sign of his faithfulness to his promises. This was a big deal. And in Acts 15, what they end up making a decision led by the Holy Spirit in is that they actually don't require circumcision for these Gentile believers. Baptism, in a lot of ways, replaced circumcision, but we can't under estimate or devalue how massive of a decision this was to accommodate the Gentile people by dismissing or sort of not requiring circumcision. But what I find fascinating that they were willing to accommodate and do away with circumcision, but the two kind of cornerstone ethics they were unwavering in were these two things. They mention it twice in Acts. I got it up on the screen. Idolatry and sexual immorality. The Greek word for sexual immorality is porneia. And so idolatry, we've been talking about idols, right? That idolatry, it's the sin beneath all sins. I get why they were unwavering in calling the Gentile people to really be careful with idols. But number two, what's the big deal about porneia, the big deal about sexual immorality? Deb Hirsch, she's from Australia, a Christian scholar, thinker, writer. She puts it this way. She said, I come to believe that sexuality, it's so interlaced with our longing for deep spirituality that you cannot access one without also tapping into the other. We're whole people. We're not compartmentalized. And Raider family, I don't know if any of you have gotten sincere and honest with your heart. What is with your powerful sex drive? What's with it? Why is it there? Who made it? And how do you actually fulfill this powerful sex drive in a way that transcends a sort of everlasting joy, that yearning and longing tied to the sex drive in your heart? Bruce Marshall has a really interesting, head-scratching quote. He says, every young man who rings the bell at a brothel, which is a, pro a house of prostitutes, is unconsciously looking for God. How can Bruce say that? How he can say that is because the action might be sinful, but the longing, the drive, the desire itself is in many ways really good. We got to go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. The very first story in the story of God in the Bible, this very first story talks about how God made everything. He made image bearers. And then after that, he says the phrase tov me'od. Say tov me'od. Tov me'od. Tov me'od means very good in Hebrew. He says very good once. And he says it right after he breaks the ice with his image bearers. In the church, in a lot of ways, sex is about the last thing we want to talk about. It's actually the first thing talk, God wants to talk about with his image bearers. He's almost giddy and excited. And he says, tov ma'od, after he says, be fruitful and multiply. Think about that. God says, be fruitful and multiply. Go have sex. This tov ma'od, very good thing. We're, we're shy and we blush about this stuff. But Genesis and the entire scriptures talks about sex a lot. The drive and the desire 
It's got the thumbprint and fingerprints of God all over it. But as many Christian leaders suggest, lust instead of love has sort of become the ethic of our day. Lust, in a lot of ways, is a desire of God gone bad. I'll never forget a really honest conversation with a young man in a dorm on campus two years ago. It was a late Tuesday night. We had a deep conversation. And after the group is kind of dispelling, he comes up to me. And he had great, genuine sincerity in his heart. He asked asked me, Mark, how do I get rid of all the horniness and lustfulness? It was direct. And I appreciated the question. And I felt the sincerity in his heart. And deep down, I could feel his longing for something different. He wanted to change, but I sort of redirected his question. What if it's not about shutting that down or stopping those desires? What if those desires in your life tied to pornography have just been misdirected? What if you've directed those desires towards something counterfeit rather than allowing those desires to submit to the one true God and living within his created designs? Check out the screen, Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's this sort of catechesis statement from Paul. It's a summarizing statement of the prior 11 verses of Romans in a lot of ways. And he's talking about our spiritual act of worship. And he doesn't just talk about our singing as our worship. He doesn't just talk about our volunteerism, our church attendance as our worship. He says our bodies are this living sacrifice. Our bodies, what we do with our bodies is our worship. Our bodies matter. Our bodies are sex. Sexed bodies, male and female bodies, sexed bodies matter. Matter matters. How we use our body matters. Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, why were they worried about porneia? Is because it's tied, our bodies are tied to what we worship. In these last couple of weeks, we've been saying idolatry. It's not a question of if you're worshiping something, it's what are you worshiping? If someone were to think about how you steward your sexed bodies, what are you worshiping? When we live in God's design, when the one true God is our God, we have home. But when there's a counterfeit God sitting on the throne of our life or the throne of our society, we're not just heart crushed, we're homesick. We're homesick. And that's what that ache deep inside of any one of us who are willing to get honest with the sexual brokenness of our story, deep down what you're suffering from is a homesickness. But the gospel is a gospel of belonging. Come home. I love that the story of God from Genesis to Revelation is a story of how God wants to find a home with his people. Old Testament, he wants to tabernacle, dwell with his people through a tent. Jesus dwelt among us. Another word in the gospel of John, Jesus tabernacled among us. God fully with us in the person of Jesus. And now as New Testament believers, we in Jesus are actually the temples or tabernacles of the living God, his Holy Spirit. God doesn't want us just to dwell in his presence. He wants to indwell us, our physical bodies with his presence, the presence of his Holy Spirit. You are profoundly sacred and dwelt with the Holy Spirit. And this is why we got to get honest with lust because it undermines the love of our God. God is love. God wants to infill us with his Holy Spirit and dwell us with the Holy Spirit. Lust, in a lot of ways, robs and decays love. Lust, if I were to give you a one-word definition, it's about taking. Or another word is, it's about consuming. 
There's a Polish thinker, uh, philosopher I really appreciate. His name's Abraham Joshua Heschel. He passed away in the 70s. He was a gentleman who walked with MLK on Selma and beyond. I respect him and appreciate his thinking in so many ways. But he was observing the Hebrew language once. And did you know that the Hebrew language, it doesn't have a neuter? And what I mean is, is everything's masculine or feminine. There's no it. There's no thing. And a language is a window into a culture, more so a belief system. The Hebrew language is a window into what they believed. They believe that nothing is a thing. Nothing is an it. All matter matters. The Hebrew way, they saw that the substance of all things created were sustained by the sacred breath of life, the sacred breath of God himself, that there's a sacredness to all things and to reduce the sacred substance of God's sustaining breath to a it or a thing is to reduce it to something and degrade it unto something that it's not. We consume objects. We take things. Abraham Joshua Heschel, what he was worried about right before he passed away in the 1970s was that we've taken the sacredness of what God has created and we've reduced it to its objects and things. Do you know what that is, that worldview? It's consumerism. You consume an it. You consume a thing. And this is 50 years ago. And fast forward 50 years, what I'm worried about, one of the scariest things about consumerism is not only how all-pervading it is, but consumerism takes the sacredness of image bearers of God and it reduces an image bearer to a thing and an object. I'll give you a couple of examples. Just chatting just this last week with a colleague why he doesn't do fantasy football anymore. He was playing fantasy football in a league, and he was with a guy in his league who had the chance to win the league. And an NFL player this guy had on his team had a season-ending injury, almost a life-threatening injury. And the guy got angry because he lost the opportunity to win the league. You get angry when somebody almost loses their their life. This NFL player became inhuman, a commodity, a thing, not a person. Pyramid scheme business. A friend of mine was caught up in a pyramid scheme business, and he confessed to me years in. He went to a church that I was a pastor at. He confessed to me years in that part of the reason, one of the main reasons he chose our church was because there was not only a lot of people, but there was a lot of resource and wealth at our church. And he ultimately wanted to sort of participate in our church because he wanted to build his clientele base, seeing people at church as a means unto a a self-centered end. I'll never forget a few years ago when I was hired by a ministry, a person on that search committee was honest with me as they kept dialoguing with me after they offered me the position and I joined the ministry, that this person, the only reason they were really spending so much time with me was because they wanted to sell me a house. They were a real estate agent. I felt like an object, more than a person. I'll never forget being in a room of of colleagues. We were discussing a political leader, and this certain political leader has a certain conviction that they don't sit one-on-one with a member of the opposite sex. And it's not that I agree with the stance of this political leader, but the way we were talking about this political leader, we completely reduced his humanity to his position. 
not considering his story, his own marriage, his own history, how their marital dynamic works, how he can live in a place of honor. My point in simply bringing that up is this. We just look at leaders sometimes as objects more than people with stories or human beings. And I got super convicted a couple of years ago. I was a part of a nonprofit startup ministry in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I was sitting down after a prime rib dinner with a friend of mine who was the largest donor to my ministry. And he was lamenting to me after we ate together how everybody came to him for, to leverage his resources or his influence. He was incredibly influential in Sioux Falls. And it convicted me because part of the main reason I was meeting with him was to invite him to donate to our ministry. It can be sneaky, it can be subtle, it can be in small ways, but when you roll consumerism out, we suddenly sometimes take the sacredness of image bearer to image bearer and it gets reduced where we use, take, consume, and accidentally objectify, and therefore we're more about the utility of another than the dignity and honor that they deserve. Let's play a little fill in the blank. There's three quotes up here from three Christian leaders from three different generations, and there's one answer to all three blanks. Josh McDowell says, right now, there's nothing destroying more relationships than this thing. Chuck Swindoll says, this is the greatest cancer in the church. Jay Stringer says, this is the most predominant form of unwanted behavior. You know what it is? All three, same answer, pornography. Pornography has commodified the Imagio Dei. Pornography, in a lot of ways, is this ethic of taking. And it's become a Goliath of a counterfeit god, a Goliath of an idol. I'll throw you a couple stats. And quite frankly, I didn't have time to update my research. These stats are two years old. $97 billion industry, pornography industry. Statistically speaking, pornography is the number one sex educator in the world. There's more traffic at pornographic sites than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. 68 million daily pornographic search engine requests. That's one in four times every time a browser is open. 35% of all internet downloads are tied to pornography in some way. In many respects, it's the world's favorite form of entertainment. And the industry is huge, and it's got a lot of money, and it's smart, and it's taken the Disney approach. It knows how to hook people at a younger and younger age. Average age of exposure is nine. One in four clicks on a pornographic site are by a woman. 46% of those first exposed to pornography, it was an accident. They didn't go pursuing it or looking for it. In other words, pornography, this Goliath, it's targeting and the largest demographic of consuming pornography is in the United States, people aged 12 to 20. Your generation has been targeted by this Goliath. It's waged war against you. And the church isn't immune to it. And this is an old stat. I'm not sure if it would change much today, but Barna did a research in like 2016, 2018. They found 68% of Christian men and 33% of Christian women regularly or monthly view pornography. And here's where I just want to just name this really loud and clear. You all are made with a good, beautiful sex drive 
from God. And God has crystal clear answers to your amazing questions. You have amazing questions. But this is where my generation and the older generation has completely and utterly failed you. We'll give the sex talk, or if we're too embarrassed to say sex, we'll give the talk. We give you just a simple talk, or we just are completely silent, hardly talking about sex, when the Bible is full of all sorts of beautiful visions of this good sexual design by God, we, the older generation, have failed you. And I just want to say on behalf of our generation, I am so sorry. It's our silence that in many ways has carved out the space for this idol to become a Goliath that it is, the number one sex educator in the world. And so let's define this thing just a little bit more clearly. It's a counterfeit God. It's a Goliath of a God. But here's my definition. It offers, pornography offers an artificial intimacy based on taking with the allure or deception of no risks, but with the detrimental consequences that are very real. Think about salt water. You drink water, it hydrates you, it sustains your life. But did you know that if you drink salt water, it looks the exact same, it looks just like fresh water. It's a counterfeit of fresh water, but it actually does the opposite of hydrate. It dehydrates you. If you would be stuck on an island somewhere and drink salt water, it would actually decay you on the inside and kill you from the inside out. In similar ways, pornography, this pornographic sort of framework that we look at the world, it will decay us from the inside out. God's design for sex is about mutual connection. Pornification is about the exertion of power. God's design moving towards another Imagio day, pornification, further isolation. God's design is about selflessness, giving to a covenant partner. Pornification is about taking for the sake of self. This is about honor and dignity. This is about objectification and utility. This is about commitment and protecting the beauty of pursuing in the place of love. This is about coveting, perpetually consuming image after image after image. And God's designed this desire in us. It's powerful. It's a powerful drive on the, on the onset. And its impact is powerful. It's life-making, literally life-making. But when you take this and misdirect it to a counterfeit, it's powerfully life-taking, contorting, traumatizing, and consuming. And the sexual brokenness that many of us carry in this room, we feel the life-taking effects in many ways, the counterfeit, the saltwater effects. It's so powerful. God designed it so powerful, but it, it's powerful. And in order to harness all of its tov meodness, all of its very goodness, sex, God has to harness that energy, that powerful drive with four Fs. I gave, gave you four Fs to help you remember. This is a biblical vision of sex. Faithful, fruitful, free, and full. Faithful, lifelong covenant partner, man and woman in marriage. God's designed it on faithfulness. Fruitful, the intent of this is to make life. Fruitful, children. Third, free, non-coercive and non-manipulative and full. There's a totality of self-gift to a spouse. This is God's design for guardians that sort of protect the beauty and goodness and freedom tied to the truth of how God's made this thing. God wants us to be great lovers. 
who dignify and give, but pornography wants to make us great takers who consume and objectify. Jesus is living water. Pornography is salt water. And friends, take heart, because for many of us, there's good desires here. And for many of us, we've never had a space to process those good desires. We've had silence in the church. And again, I'm just so sorry. And I just got to be honest with you about the, the consequences, because whenever we worship something that's a counterfeit God versus the true God, not only will it crush our hearts, but it'll absolutely symptomatically start to show in society. And I'm just going to start to name just a few stats. This is all science and data backed. I just don't have time to get into it. Erectile dysfunction in young men in their 20s, never seen before. Data says it's tied to pornography. Less satisfaction in the marriage bed, higher divorce rates, pornography. Less gray matter volume in our brain. Science says tied to pornography, more loneliness, depression, hyper self-consciousness of our bodies, guilt and shame, higher likelihood of having an eating disorder, higher likelihood of violently sexually assaulting another or even being sexually assaulted yourself. These are heart-wrenching, sobering things. And it's so pervasive. Pornography is so pervasive, we actually make it in our own homes. It's called sexting. 66% of teenagers say they've received. 41% say they've sent. I've noticed the continual drift of how often dating advice questions come into my office and how often I get this question in dating. How far is too far? And how little I get this question. How do I most honor and dignify and value the imago day and my girlfriend and glorify God? Giving or taking? Honoring or consuming? You see, pornography, we don't even have to view it to feel its effects. Pornography, it changes the way we view people in the everyday ordinary. It changes the way we see people not from a lens of honor and dignity, but from a lens of consuming, reducing an image bearer to an object for my own gratification. An ethic of taking and lust. And when we develop an ethic and we allow a sex educator like pornography to be the number one educator, we live in a world that is now ripe for enslavement. 50 million people, IGM just told us on Friday, 50 million people enslaved. Many of those people are enslaved in sexually exploitative situations. They're trafficked, sex trafficking. Every click, every video, Every sext, every swipe, every pornographic image is a micro step and micro vote saying yes to that kind of world. And I know that that's a heavy thing to hear. And I pray against shame, but the Holy Spirit does bring conviction, not for to bury us, but to invite us to freedom and to fight for a world that is a free world. IJM does work specifically internationally. And you might be thinking, oh, that's just stuff out there internationally. But here's the reality. It happens in our own soil. My dear friend Tasha, she grew up with down the street from me. She's like a little sister. She went on to Sioux Falls one day, Empire Mall. She was approached for a photo gig, flown down to Florida. Next thing you know, she's exploited against her will, and she's trafficked on the streets. She was sex trafficked in our country. This isn't just an international thing. This is a domestic thing. 
how do 50 million people get enslaved? Mortification. So Acts 15, why did the Holy Spirit impress it on those early believers to hold firm on pornea, sexual immorality? I wonder if the Holy Spirit's wisdom to know that we're called to honor the sacred image of God and to never reduce each other to a thing or an object. Let me close with this story. So my son, William, he's my oldest son. Part of the reason he's named William is he's named after one of my heroes, William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce dedicated his whole life to the abolition of slavery. Three days before he died in 1833, he saw the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833 go through, which abolished and illegalized the transatlantic slave trade that was going on. And he fought for the for the freedom of millions of people in his day. It was a Goliath in his day, and he went toe-to-toe, and through God's faithfulness, through William Wilberforce's action, freedom. God's in the business of taking down Goliaths. In the Old Testament, there was a boy named David who looked at Goliath in the eyes, beheaded him, and a whole nation walked in victory and freedom. The slain of Goliath. I got a real, real, real serious invitation for all of you to pray about. You want to be a Goliath slayer? You want to be about abolition? You want to be about freedom? You want to take down a giant? Sex trafficking supported by pornography? I got a few invitations for you to consider, okay? All right, I'm gonna invite the worship team up, my good friends Aaron and Grace. Here's four invitations for you. Number one, alarm clocks are so fritten cool, I can't even tell you, all right? Put your cell phone, turn it off, put it on the opposite opposite side of the room. Seriously, get an alarm clock. Your roommate will love it too, okay, all right? Second, there's a ministry on this campus. There's a men's curriculum and female women's curriculum called Huddle. And for any of you who are longing for a sexual discipleship, longing for a safe, shame-free, supportive space, gender-specific groups of six to eight, please reach out to campus ministry. Send me an email. It will not be announced from the mountaintops. We'll get you plugged into this ministry. We need a journey. We need a discipleship. We need a safe space. Uh, to heal and be about something different, especially for any of us who are experiencing sexual brokenness or patterns of addiction. I want to invite you to engage this year. The first one is this Thursday. Please come. We're talking about sex and the body this year. We got to talk about a theology of the body. We got to ground our vision of sex in scripture. And so that's the third invitation. And the fourth invitation, I'm going to hand it over to my sisters, Aaron and Grace, uh, to invite you to consider. Yes, hello everybody. My name is Erin and this is Grace and we have the honor of serving you as um, your justice and service coordinators on campus ministry this year. Um, So last Friday we had the opportunity to hear from Katie Russell. She's the director of mobilization for IJM in the Chicago area. She shared with us the importance of advocating for justice as we are inspired by our Christian faith and God's call to seek justice for people in oppression. She shared with us the words of Isaiah 117, which says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. 
IJM follows a specific framework to pursue biblical justice in the world by rescuing victims of trafficking, bringing criminals to justice, restoring survivors to safety and strength through local programs, and helping local law enforcement to build a safe and lasting future. IJM recognizes the dignity in all people and that many are affected by deep injustices in the system and that those injustices are out of their control. IJM partners with people around the world to form a team of lawyers, social workers, investigators, community activists, and others inspired by their Christian faith to work towards justice. So we as Northwestern students, faculty, and staff are partnering with IJM to fund a rescue operation to rescue victims out of sex or labor trafficking. So one of the ways we can combat idolatry is by living generously, selflessly serving others, and working toward justice for those who are most vulnerable. So we invite you all to participate in our goal of raising $8,800 to fund a rescue operation. The fundraiser starts today and will go throughout the whole semester. So there's a QR code behind us that you guys can scan and then we'll have it up around campus to give electronically whenever you get to it. And we highly encourage you to consider giving. Um, if every on-campus student gives $7.83 towards the rescue operation, it will be fully funded. So that's really just one trip to scooters or brads or lawas or whatever you spend $7 on. Yeah, and through participating in the funding of a rescue operation, you are fighting to end slavery in a significant way. Um, feel free to come up to either me or Grace after chapel today if you guys have any questions or want to learn how to get more involved with IJM. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron and Grace. And so our worship team, we're going to just sing one last song. We're going to invite you to sit and reflect. I want to invite you to get every one of you, get your Christian formation card out. And do not feel compulsion in this, but feel invitation, strong invitation. God's, your money is really God's money. But seriously, consider being a part. Let's raise $8,800 and let's join IJM in setting somebody free from sex exploitation. Amen? What's your part? God's given you your breath. He's given you all of your money. How can you steward God's money that he's given you? Give $8. Give $10. Give $20. Give $50. Give as God leads you to give. It's super easy. QR code all across campus. But for our office's sake, so we can help keep track of how God is stirring you to give generously, we're not going to tell anybody about what you've given. But would you write that dollar amount on the back of your Christian formation card? We'll be the only people to know. Um, and it's just for accounting purposes. And so give as God calls you to give. Reflect as we sing this last song together, all right? Cool.